Chapter 65 of History of Philosophy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Schneider. History of Philosophy by William Turner. Chapter 65 German Philosophy. Continued. Hegel. Life. Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel was born at Stuttgart in 1770. His life, like that of all the great post-Kantian philosophers, is merely the history of his academic and literary career. At the age of 18 he entered the theological seminary at Tübingen, where he devoted himself to the study of Kant and Rousseau, having for companions Schelling and the young poet Hölderlin, whose enthusiasm for Greek poetry he fully shared. The years 1793 to 1800 he spent as private tutor at Bern and at Frankfurt am Main, years in which, through the study of Hellenic literature, he attained a realization of the spiritual significance of nature as the key to the harmony of existence. In 1801 he entered the University of Jena, and after a few years spent there as Privatdozent, was appointed Professor Extraordinary, 1805. While at Jena, he renewed his acquaintance with Schelling, who was at that time editor of the Critical Journal of Philosophy. Soon, however, divergence of opinion between the two great opponents of Fichte's subjectivism led to the development by Hegel of a system opposed to the philosophy of identity. In 1807, he published his Phenomenologie des Geistes, his first important contribution to speculative philosophy. After spending a year as newspaper editor at Bamberg, Hegel became rector of the Gymnasium at Nuremberg, and while there published his Logik, Wissenschaft der Logik, 1816. In 1816 he was made professor of philosophy at Heidelberg, and in 1818 was transferred to the University of Berlin. While at Heidelberg he published the Encyclopedia, Encyclopedie der philosophischen Wissenschaften im Grundrisse, 1817. He died at Berlin in 1831. Sources. Hegel's works were published soon after his death, Berlin 1832 and following, in 19 volumes, the last volume being The Life of Hegel, written by Rosenkranz. The Journal of Speculative Philosophy, volumes 1 to 5, St. Louis, 1867 to 1871, published translations of the Phenomenologie and of portions of the Encyclopédie. The Logik was translated by W. T. Harris and is to be found in the second volume of the journal just referred to. Wallace has published translations of the most important portions of the Encyclopédie, The Logic of Hegel, Oxford, 1892, and Hegel's Philosophy of Mind, Oxford, 1894. The translation of the Vorlesungen über die Philosophie der Geschichte by Sibri is published in Bohn's Library, Philosophy of History, London, 1860-1884. Professor Cairds, Hegel, Blackwood's Philosophical Classics, Edinburgh and Philadelphia, 1896, will be found very useful by those who are not prepared to take up Sterling's formidable exposition, The Secret of Hegel, Two volumes, London, 1865. One volume, Edinburgh and London, 1898. 
Mind, especially in the new series, contains many valuable articles expository and explanatory of Hegelian philosophy. See also Fischer's Hegel, Heidelberg, 1898-1901. to Doctrines The Problem of Philosophy Thus far, in following the course of development of philosophic thought in Germany, we have found that Kant, by failing to complete the synthesis of ultimate reality, bequeathed the problem towards the solution of which all post-Kantian speculation was directed. Fichte completed the synthesis by merging the thing in itself, object, in the activity of the ego, subject. Schelling tried to effect a synthesis equally complete by merging both subject and object in the indifference of the absolute. Hegel now approaches the problem anew. Dissatisfied with Schelling's solution of the problem, he proposes to substitute for the absolute of indifference an absolute of imminent activity. According to Schelling, nature and spirit, object and subject, proceed from the absolute. According to Hegel, the absolute becomes successively nature and spirit. The absolute of Hegel's speculative system is a process rather than a source. It is infinite, but unlike the spinozistic substance, it is an infinite of activity, opposition and tension, rather than of static immensity and of undifferentiated plenitude. It is a maelstrom rather than a sea of unruffled rest. This concept of the absolute is Hegel's starting point, but we can understand neither his starting point nor his method unless we first obtain a clear conception of the frame of mind in which he approaches the problems of philosophy. In Fichte, as in Kant, the ethical character predominated, and in Fichte's philosophy the practical reason retained its supremacy. In Schelling it was the scientific artistic character that prevailed, and in his philosophy the real and the ideal, the rational and the imaginative, were given equal play. In Hegel, the rational or idealistic temperament is predominant. In his vast philosophical synthesis, the theoretical is placed supreme above the practical, and action is subordinated to thought, for thought is the center and sum of reality. Quote, the rational alone is real. Unquote. Quote, all being is thought realized, and all becoming is a development of thought. Unquote. Mere science, he observes, looks for the causal explanations of phenomena. Philosophy seeks to find the ideal interpretation of phenomena to understand them in terms of the absolute, which is thought. As to content, therefore, philosophy does not go beyond experience. It is, to repeat Kant's distinction, transcendental but not transcendent. Indeed, it cannot go beyond rational experience since the rational alone is real, and philosophy must necessarily be in harmony with actuality and experience. As to form, however, philosophy differs from the empirical sciences, for to the laws, classifications and categories of these sciences it adds the categories of notion, being, essence, etc. In logic, as we shall see, these categories are studied as it were in vacuo, that is, devoid of all empirical content. But in the philosophy of nature and in the philosophy of mind, they are studied in their development and determination. 
Logic is nevertheless a science of reality, for in it reality is studied through the abstract categories. Hegel's is a critical philosophy, yet it is at the same time systematic or constructive. It is, as Wallace says, quote, a system which is self-critical and systematic only through the absoluteness of its criticism, unquote. Or, to use Hegel's own phrase, it is, quote, an imminent and incessant dialectic, unquote. Briefly, then, Hegel's philosophy is idealism in the absolute sense of the word, logical or conceptual rather than ethical or scientific. It is a philosophy of identity inasmuch as it looks upon nature and spirit as manifestations of a higher absolute. It is a philosophy of development inasmuch as the absolute from which it deduces nature and spirit is not a static but a dynamic prize. This dynamic prize of nature and spirit is the process from in itself, an sich, through out of self, für sich, anders sein, to for itself, an und für sich. Before passing to consider Hegel's method, it is necessary to emphasize the importance of the idea of development and to explain the principle which governs all development, whether in the purely logical order or in nature and mind. In its barest statement, the principle is that all development passes through three stages, in itself, out of self and for itself. This may be called a metaphysical application of the maxim on which the mystics insist, namely, die to live. For it pertains to the very essence of spirit that through disintegration it must attain to reintegration, through diversity to unity, through strife to peace, through opposition to agreement. It is a law of thought as well as a law of being, and thought is being, that a concept or a thing realizes itself by going out from itself, losing itself in the other, and returning to itself. To take one of Hegel's favorite examples, freedom is developed by discipline, which is its opposite. The freedom of the child is surrendered in the discipline of education in order to become the major freedom of the man, and the freedom of the man is in turn surrendered in the discipline of law, in order to become the freedom of the citizen. Hegel's method is to be understood in the light of his principle of development. Fichte, while admitting in theory that philosophic method consists in the use of thesis, antithesis and synthesis, failed to develop this idea of method and to apply it to every department of thought. Schelling relied on intuition and gave free scope to his exuberant imagination. Hegel insists on the pruning of the imaginative faculty and the discussion of all intuitions by means of dialectic. Philosophy, he observes, being the thinking study of things, does not stop at the intuition, which presents the thing, object, in its immediate unity, for that is only part of the truth, but follows it out into the self-mediation, whereby it passes into its opposites and back again to reconstructed unity. Philosophy, therefore, must pursue a concept or an object from its immediate unity into the divergence of opposites, so as to arrive at the full truth in the reconciliation of opposites. For all position is negation. Every concept contains its opposite. And all negation is position. Every opposite contains that to which it is opposed. 
so that neither in affirmation nor in negation is there the full truth, but in the reaffirmation which follows affirmation and negation. Here we have the famous dialectical method, the triadism, which determines the division as well as the method of Hegel's philosophy. It is important to note here that, quote, at least the first and third category, the in itself and for itself in every triad, may be looked upon as definitions of the absolute, or metaphysical definitions of God. The first, where the thought form of the triad is formulated in its simplicity, and the third being the return from differentiation to a simple self-reference. The second subcategory, the out of self in each triad, where the grade of thought is in its differentiation, gives on the other hand a definition of the finite. Unquote. We shall find as we proceed triad within triad. The first great triad is idea, nature and spirit, which gives us the division of philosophy. Division of philosophy Philosophy starts with the idea. It is scarcely necessary to remark that the term idea does not here designate a phenomenon of the individual consciousness, but the system of reason, the sum of reality. Now the idea, following the law of development, is at first in itself, an sich, then outside itself, für sich anders sein, and finally for itself, an und für sich. There are therefore three parts of philosophy. First, logic, the science of the idea in itself. Second, philosophy of nature, the science of the idea outside itself or in the state of otherness. Third, philosophy of mind, the science of the idea come back to itself out of otherness. In each of these divisions there are subordinate triadic divisions, so that each part is a circle, rounded and completed in itself, while philosophy as a whole resembles a circle of circles. First, logic is the science of the pure idea. This does not mean that logic is the science of the forms of thought, or that it is the science of mere thought. It is the science of reality, for the idea is the sum of reality, the synthetic unity of experience. Logic differs from the other parts of philosophy merely in this, that it is the science of reality looked at through the medium of pure or abstract thought. If, then, logic is the morphology of thought, Hegelian logic is the morphology of the world, life of reality. As Hegel himself says, quote, logic coincides with metaphysics, the science of things set and held in thoughts, unquote. It is important to remark here that the identification of logic with metaphysics necessitates a change in the meaning of the word category and in that of the phrase deduction of the categories. The forms of thought are for Hegel what they were for none of his Kantian predecessors, Forms of being in a sense akin to that which the schoolmen attach to the substantial forms, although, of course, they differ radically from the scholastic forms inasmuch as they are wholly dynamic processes rather than static entities conceived after some remote analogy to a mold or die. The forms of thought are for Hegel what they were for none of his Kantian predecessors forms of being in a sense akin to that which the schoolmen attach to substantial forms, although, of course, they differ radically from the scholastic forms inasmuch as they are wholly dynamic processes rather than static entities conceived after some remote analogy to a mould or die. 
If then the categories are processes of being as well as forms of thought, the deduction of the categories will be the tracing of their genealogy from the first form, which is being. It will not be enough to enumerate the categories and to indicate their systematic articulation. It will be necessary to discover and demonstrate their genetic connection, their functional dependence, so to speak, on one another. Logic is not only the morphology, it is also the physiology of thought. It is important to note also that neither in the logic nor anywhere else in Hegelian philosophy are the categories discovered. The task of discovering the categories belongs to experience and to empirical sciences. The categories being given, philosophy shows how they grow out of each other and are phases of the same reality. Philosophy not merely enumerates them, for that would be simply a mechanical synthesis. It also shows their functional interdependence and interconnection, thus affecting an organic synthesis. Logic is divided into a doctrine of being, sein, that is, of the idea in its immediacy, b doctrine of essence, wesen, that is, of the idea in its reflection or mediation, c doctrine of notion, begriff, that is, of the idea returned to itself. Being is the notion implicit or in germ. Essence is the show or appearance shine of the notion, and the notion is being or idea in and for itself. A. Doctrine of Being Logic begins with being, because being is, on the one hand, pure thought, and on the other, immediacy itself, simple and indeterminate. Now, if being is complete indeterminateness, it is identical with nothing, nichts. Let us see what Hegel means by the famous formula being equals nothing. He means that, while there is undoubtedly a distinction between being and nothing, the distinction is not absolute, but only relative. When Aristotle enunciated the principle of contradiction, he gave expression to what is only part of the truth. For if it is true that every object and every thought is differentiated from every other object and every other thought, and is therefore identical with itself, A is not not A, A equals A, it is no less true that every object and every thought is related to every other object and every other thought, and that, in so far as it is related to another, it is differentiated from itself and identical with that other. A is not A. A equals not A. Aristotle, emphasizing one aspect of thought, namely its differentiating power, and failing to realize the equal importance of the relating power of thought, formulated the principle of contradiction, the differentiation of things, as if it were an absolute truth, whereas it is only relative to one aspect of thought and being. Looking at thought and being from the viewpoint of totality, we see that the absolute differentiation or the absolute identity of concepts or of things is but part of the truth, the whole truth being that concepts and things are partially differentiated and partially identified. We have consequently as much right to say that being is nothing as that being is being, since the whole truth is that being is both, being and nothing. It is becoming, das werden. Here we have the barest and most abstract form of development by means of the union of opposites. Becoming is, as Hegel himself says, a poor term, meagre of content. 
life and mind are higher, richer, more intense unions of opposites than is mere becoming, which, however, is the abstract formula of life and mind. The result of the union of being and nothing in becoming is, first, the process itself, an endless swaying, a constant tension, and secondly, at each stage of the process, a product, so that to being identical with nothing succeeds determinate being, or what we call something, or being then and there, Dasein. Now the determinateness of being is, in its immediacy, quality, from which are deduced the categories otherwise being, negation, limit, alteration, being for self, which is the one with its attraction and repulsion. But in attraction and repulsion, the one annuls itself and its determinants, becoming the many. At this point, therefore, quality passes over into quantity. Quantity is defined as, quote, pure being where the mode or character, quality, is no longer taken as one with the being itself, but explicitly put as superseded or indifferent, unquote. Quantity arises from a unit and the identification or equalization of other units. Completing now the triadic circle within pure being, we have measure, mass, as the union of quality and quantity. In measure these two are united, so, for example, progressive diminution in temperature causes a transition from heat to cold. For quantity is implicitly quality, and quality is implicitly quantity. Being, which is thus determined by quality, quantity and measure, becomes essence, or, in other words, the determinations, quality, quantity and measure being transitory. The result of their dialectic is essence. B. Doctrine of Essence Essence, Wesen, is defined as being coming into mediation with itself through the negativity of itself. Being, as we have seen, is immediate in its self-identity. Now when this immediacy is deposed, being is reduced to a reflected light, and essence is being thus reflected on itself. As reflection supersedes immediacy, essence supersedes being. The reflection is, however, to be conceived as inward in direction. For the outer rind or curtain is being, and the inner reflection is essence. There is, therefore, a duality here. The categories of essence come in pairs, as, for instance, essence and appearance, force and expression, matter and form, substance and accident, cause and effect. A duality which, as we shall see, disappears in the notion, wherein the opposite aspects of being attain final unity. First we have essence and appearance. Immediate being is now in appearance, yet it is not, as we should say, merely phenomenal, for it is the appearance of an essence, and it is as necessary that the appearance should have an essence as it is that the essence should appear. Life, for example, must manifest itself, the cause must produce an effect, and at the same time there is no manifestation of life without life, and no production of an effect without a cause. Next, as determinations of essence, we have identity and difference. The unity of these is the ground, Grund, which is defined 
quote, the essence put explicitly in totality, unquote. At this point, essence has completed the circle of self-mediation, reflection, so that we are back again at immediate being, not at being in its primitive immediacy, but at being in an immediacy which results from the annulment of all intermediation. Being, which is immediate in this sense, is existence, developing now the categories of ground and existence into an explicit unity we arrive at the category of thing ding thing in its relation to reflection on other things develops the category of properties and the union of essence with existence combining all the essential with the existential aspects of being gives the form of actuality which is synonymous with reality similarly by processes the details of which it is unnecessary to set down here the categories content and form power and expression inner and outer substance and accident cause and effect action and reaction are deduced from essence it is important however to note that as substance and accident so cause and effect and indeed all the categories which come under the head of essence and appearance are inseparable cause passes over into effect so that the effect is the cause explicated or manifested and effect in turn passes over into cause for the causal series is not a progress at infinitum the rectilinear movement from cause to effect being bent back on itself so as to form a circle in which every effect becomes the cause of its cause this reciprocity is illustrated in history for example the character and manners of a nation influence its constitution and laws while in turn the constitution and laws of a country influence the character and manners of its people the category of reciprocity wechselwirkung does away with the idea of predetermining fatality shows that freedom is to be found in the concept of absolute but reciprocal necessity and thus leads us to the category of the notion c doctrine of the notion the notion begriff is quote, essence reverted to the immediacy of being unquote. or since each category is inseparable from its antecedent the notion is the principle of freedom the power of substance self-realized in fact the notion contains all the earlier categories and may therefore be defined as the truth of being and essence obviously then we may understand the notion to be synonymous with totality fully realized which is apparently what hegel means when he says that quality quantity force cause necessity freedom are nothing apart from the notion the dialectical process of being was transition that of essence was reflection the movement of the notion is merely development it is hegel tells us to be looked upon as play for the other which it sets up is not really an other following this play of the notion we find that its triadic development is subjective notion objective notion and absolute notion or idea a subjective notion is the notion as notion and as such has three moments universality particularity and individuality the meaning is that the notion passes from unity to partition and thence back to the explicit identification of parts in the one this reintegration is effected by means of judgment urteil 
which as its name implies signifies the identification of partition with primary unity so that the abstract form in which all judgments may be expressed is quote, the individual is the universal unquote. now judgment inasmuch as it affirms the identity of the individual with the universal contains a contradiction this contradiction is removed in the syllogism the syllogism is therefore the complete expression of the subjective notion the reintegration of the partitions of the notion in the universal by means of the particular Quote, consequently at the present stage in the deduction of the categories the definition of the absolute is that it is a syllogism or stating the principle in the form of a preposition everything is a syllogism Unquote. b objective notion thus far the notion has been considered in its subjective stage as it were in the abstract as form without content but since it is a form which in its ultimate development is a union of opposites it constantly tends to objectify itself the notion as object is the totality of objects the universe here as usual we are to distinguish three forms mechanism or the juxtaposition of independent objects held together as an aggregate chemism or the mutual attraction penetration and neutralization of objects elements held together by affinity and organism or the complete unity of purposive action in which the independence of the objects body cells disappears and parts are made to serve the purpose of the entire structure now notion become object implies a contradiction for as subjective notion was form without content so the object as object is content without form the play of the notion has here reached a point where the notion is not a notion the contradiction however disappears in the idea or absolute notion c absolute notion is the truth in itself and for itself the absolute unity of notion and objectivity it may be defined as reason subject object the union of the real with the idea of the body with the soul etc it is essentially a process in its immediate form it is life when it becomes its own object in the theoretical order it becomes the true when it becomes its own object in the practical order it becomes the good and when by its theoretical and practical activity the knowledge of the true and the pursuit of the good it returns to itself from the bias and finiteness of cognition and volition it becomes the absolute idea life is defective inasmuch as it is the idea implicit or natural cognition volition is defective in so far as it is the idea as merely conscious and therefore one-sided the absolute idea unites the truth of life with the truth of consciousness supplying the defect of the former and overcoming the one-sidedness of the latter this is the goal of the entire series of logical processes in its next phase the idea passes over into otherness and becomes nature thus far we have followed the triadic developments of the idea reality reason the absolute through processes which in non-technical language may be styled the dialectic of the divine reason anteriorly to the creation of the universe we come in the next place to the study of reason in nature second philosophy of nature 
Nature is the idea, reason, and the state of otherness, a state intermediate between the immediacy of reason as notion and the reintegrated immediacy of reason as it fully realizes itself in spirit. In nature, the idea has become externalized and particularized. Its unity has disappeared, or rather is concealed. Still nature, while it is a state of the idea, is also a process of spirit. And although the natural sciences are right in regarding phenomena as isolated realities, they do not fully exhaust the truth of nature, the very plurality of phenomena being a contradiction which of itself shows that nature is a process. Philosophy, therefore, taking a higher viewpoint than that of science, represents nature as a series of successful struggles by which the idea, scattered as it were in plurality, regains unity and self-identity, self-consciousness, in the individual spirit, man, which is the goal of the processes of nature. Exclude this concept of the upward struggle of nature, and natural phenomena become a tangled mass of events in inextricable disorder. There are three stages in the process which is nature, namely mechanics, matter and space, physics, bodies, and organics, life. In bodies, nature attains individuality. In living organisms, it attains subjectivity, or consciousness. It is only in man that it attains self-consciousness, self as subject and object. Man, however, while he is the highest product of the idea in nature, is, like nature itself, subject to the law of development. No sooner, therefore, has the idea become spirit but attaining self-consciousness in man, then it undergoes a further and final process of development as subjective, objective and absolute spirit. This last process is the subject matter of the philosophy of mind. The philosophy of nature has been pronounced the least original and the least consistent of the three portions into which Hegel's philosophy is divided. It underwent more modification in the hands of Hegel's pupils and successors than did the logic or the philosophy of mind. Yet, even in its modified form, the Hegelian philosophy of nature is far from being consistent with the principle of absolute idealism. Indeed, the supreme test of a system of metaphysics is its compatibility with the ultimate truth of empirical science, a test to which, it is safe to say, no system of idealism from the days of Parmenides to those of Hegel has consistently conformed. Not that the metaphysical point of view is not different from that of the physical sciences. There may, however, be difference without antagonism. For, as Hegel himself observes, quote, the philosophical way of presenting things is not a capricious effort, for once in a way to walk on one's head as a change from the ordinary method of walking on one's feet, but it is because the manner of science does not fully satisfy that we are obliged to go beyond it. Unquote. Third, philosophy of mind. Mind, spirit, geist, is the truth of nature. Its formal essence is freedom, the absolute self-identity of the idea. Mind, it is important to note, is the most complete development of the absolute, so that when we say the absolute is mind, we have the supreme definition of the absolute. But although mind is absolutely the prize of nature, yet for us it comes out of nature, and therefore brings with it what may be called a germ of development. 
in this development we are to distinguish as usual three stages subjective mind objective mind and absolute mind a subjective mind if freedom is the formal essence of mind consciousness is its material essence for it is by successive steps towards complete self-consciousness that mind attains perfect freedom hegel agrees with spinoza in teaching that the emancipative acts of the soul are conditioned by advance in knowledge a doctrine which does not surprise us when we remember that in hegel's view thought is essentially dynamic having so to speak a volitional as well as a cognitive phase while mind was still immersed in nature it took part in the planetary life of the universe responding to the change of seasons etc partially emerging from nature it experienced in the first dull stirring of consciousness namely sensation empfindung a kind of vague realization for itself as in and for itself feeling das fühlen succeeded sensation and was in turn succeeded by self-feeling selbstgefühl which is the ground of consciousness bewusstsein when it has reached this stage mind recognizing itself as an ego has divested itself of nature next as theoretical mind it passes through the stages of intuition anschauung representation vorstellung and thought das denken having now taken possession of its intuitions representations and thoughts it proceeds as practical mind to determine its contents this it does by means of impulse triebe desire begehren and inclination neigung thus arriving at complete self-determination which is freedom free will is therefore the union of theoretical and practical mind Quote, it was hegel remarks through christianity that this idea of actual freedom came into the world according to christianity the individual as such has an infinite value as the object and aim of divine law Unquote. the greeks and romans he explains maintained that freedom is an accident of birth or is grounded in strength of character or is acquired by education and philosophy while christianity on the contrary maintains that man as man is free freedom once attained must be realized and according to the universal formula of development it must be realized through its opposite necessity it is for this reason that mind objectifies itself in law the family and the state in this way through the discipline of necessity the egotistic impulse becomes property right sexual impulse becomes moral in marriage and the inclination to revenge is transformed into punitive justice in the state b objective mind the yoke of necessity to which free will subjects itself in order to realize full freedom is a right recht in which freedom attains outer actuality b morality moralität in which it attains inner actuality and c social morality sittlichkeit in which it attains complete actuality which is both inner and outer a from right springs ownership property and from ownership the right to dispose of one's possessions by contract 
Now, although contract refers primarily to individual property, it implies the merging of two wills in the common will. Hence arises the possibility of conflict between the will of the individual and that of the community. In this conflict consists wrong, unrecht, which is the duty of the public authority to correct by punishment. In this way the idea of contract leads to the idea of the state. b. From morality springs purpose, the inner determination of the subject, intention, the subjective aim of the action to be performed, inasmuch as that aim is implied in the general well-being of the subject, and good and evil, the moral aspects of action. These determine the moral standpoint, the conscientious attitude, as we should call it, of the agent. However, they determine it so vaguely and unsatisfactorily that a conflict of apparent duties often results. For conscience is liable to error, and what is subjectively represented as good may be objectively evil. To right, therefore, and to morality must be added social morality. Right regulates merely the external, material interests of life. Conscience is one-sided, because it is subjective. Social morality, being at once objective and subjective, external and internal, is the complete realization of freedom through the discipline of necessity. C. Social morality. In social moral life, the individual recognizes that what he ought to do is, for his duty is presented to him in its objective concrete realization in the family and in the state. He is no longer subject to the uncertainty of selective reflection. He sees his duty and he is, as it were, constrained to fulfill it. It is by submitting to this restraint that he attains the fullness of freedom. The primary social moral institution is the family. It is the foundation of the state and is, of its nature, permanent. Hegel was opposed to the principle of divorce and would justify the granting of divorce only in exceptional cases provided for by law. Civil society, die bürgerliche Gesellschaft, is the relative totality of individuals. It is different on the one hand from the family, for the family is an individual, and on the other hand from the state, for the state is a complete organic unity in which individuals as individuals do not exist. Civil society aims merely at the protection of individual interests. Its mission is purely economic. The state, Staat, is the perfect social organization. It does not live for the individuals of which it is composed, but for the ethical idea which it embodies, individuals being merely means which, when occasion demands it, must be sacrificed, as all private interests must be sacrificed for the good of the whole. Hegel, in treating of the state, takes up in succession constitutional law, the inner form of particular state organizations, international law, the outer form of states, which is regulative of the interrelations of states, and the dialectics of history, the laws of the general development of the universal mind, which manifests itself both in the internal constitution and in the outer forms of particular states. Alpha Constitutional law, inneres Staatsrecht. The constitution is the articulation or organization of state power. 
from the point of view of the individual the power of the state is a restriction still inasmuch as it functions for the common good it is the substance of the volition of the individual by nature men are unequal but before the law that is by virtue of the principle of state organization the merging of individual freedom in the objective mind all men are equal this however means that as abstract persons they are equal for in the concrete there is no perfect equality men being equal before the law only in so far as they are equal outside the law the collective spirit of the nation is the constitution the real living totality the embodiment of the collective spirit is the government and although according to the basic laws of organization the government must divide its powers legislative judicial and executive it must nevertheless preserve the highest form of organic unity for this reason a constitutional monarchy is superior to a republic on the one hand and to an absolute monarchy on the other hand but while hegel opposes the extension of individualism within the state he is in favour of the individualism of states with respect to one another for the state is based on national spirit and the national spirit is fostered by unity of language customs religion etc so long as a nation stands for a national idea it is a crime hegel teaches to annex it better international law das äußere staatsrecht including treaty law and natural law governs the relation of states to one another in time of peace and in time of war war hegel teaches is the indispensable means of political progress it is a crisis in the development of the idea which is embodied in the different states a crisis out of which the better state that is the state which approaches more closely to the ideal is certain to emerge victorious for right is might the better state conquers because it is better thus in every period of the world's history there has been some one chosen people a nation which realizes more perfectly than any other the ideal of national life this consideration leads to the next point the dialectics of history comma the dialectics of history hegel's philosophy of history is perhaps the most important portion of his speculative system in it we find the most intelligible application of the principle of development which dominates the method and contents of the other portions of his philosophy indeed hegel as well as schelling insisted that the lower is to be understood by the higher the philosophy of history will therefore throw light on the philosophy of nature and on logic the most general definition of the philosophy of history is that it is the thoughtful consideration of history more specifically the thought which philosophy brings to the study of history is the conception of a sovereign reason of which the succession of historical events is a rational process this is at once a postulate of history inasmuch as it is a demonstrated thesis of philosophy and a conclusion of history inasmuch as it is a most obvious inference from the study of historical happenings the micrologist admits the peddling of the idea of providence but denies its applicability to the process of history as a whole we must not hegel observes imagine god to be too weak to exercise his wisdom on the grand scale 
History, then, is the process of reason as spirit. Interest, passion, character, in a word, all the forces at play in the process are a compound of will and intelligence. The world's historical persons, the great men of history, apparently drew the impulse of their lives from themselves. In reality, however, they were great because they, quote, had an insight into the requirements of the time, which was ripe for development, unquote. They embodied the irresistible force of spirit in their own lives. They lived not for themselves, but for the idea which was their master passion. Their fate, therefore, was not a happy one. The development of the spirit in history aims at complete freedom. The process is, however, not a tranquil growth, but a stern, reluctant working through opposition to complete realization. Thus we have three stages, oneness, expansion and concentration. The Oriental monarchies represented despotism. The Grecian republics represented the unstable equilibrium of democracy tending towards demagogic rule and the Christian and parliamentary monarchy represents the reintegration of freedom in constitutional government. Here we have an ideal example of thesis, antithesis and synthesis, the triadic movement which is the law of all development. Even in the highest and most perfect form of political organization, mind is limited, and though the necessity which the state imposes makes for ultimate freedom, yet it is necessity. Mind, therefore, having objectified itself in the state, must complete the circle of development by returning to itself, becoming identical with itself and subjecting itself to itself alone, as absolute mind in art, religion and philosophy. C. Absolute mind is the ultimate identification of mind with itself. Here, mind subjects itself to itself, not as limited, but as infinite. There are three stages of absolute mind, art, religion and philosophy. A. Art. In art, mind has an intuitive contemplation of itself as infinite in the objective actuality of the art material. According as the art material becomes more docile, less rebellious to the idea, we have architecture, sculpture, painting, music and poetry. This is at once the line of ascending perfection and the line of historical development. B. Religion In religion, mind feels that the idea is superior to all its finite and particular manifestations. Religion arises from poetry, the highest form of art but it is by its nature a protest against the tendency of art to become pantheistic. Religion insists on the infinity of God and the finiteness of man, whereas the tendency of art is to deify man and represent God as human. Nevertheless, it is essential to religion to represent the infinite and finite as in some relation with each other. Oriental religions exaggerated the idea of the infinite. Greek religion gave undue importance to the finite. Christianity, being a synthesis of both, represents the union of the infinite and the finite in the doctrine of the Incarnation, and represents all truth in the dogma of the Trinity, by teaching, as far as representation can teach, the triadic development of immanent reason as idea, nature and spirit.
the intellectual content of christianity is thus the same as that of philosophy there is no supernatural truth gnosticism religion however contains the truth in the form of symbols and representations philosophy therefore which contains the truth as reason is superior to religion c philosophy is the unity of art and religion the infinite which as the beautiful was rendered visible in art and as god was made the object of representation and feeling in religion is now as the true made the object of the thinking faculty in philosophy philosophy is consequently quote, the highest freest and wisest phase of the union of subjective and objective mind and the ultimate goal of all development unquote. historical position it is difficult to trace even in outline the influence which hegel's philosophy exercised on the thought of his own and subsequent generations some of hegel's contemporaries regarded his system of philosophy as the organic synthesis of all preceding speculation and the final form of philosophic thought others believed and not a few still believe that that system must be the foundation of all profitable speculation in the future and when due allowance is made for the exaggerations which are inevitable whenever the cult of greatness attains as in this instance it has attained almost to the proportions of religious veneration it cannot be denied that hegel's was the mind which in developing towards a more complete unity the elements of kantian thought took the most comprehensive synthetic view of the problems of philosophy reached farthest and deepest into every department of knowledge and found in the principle of development the bond best suited by reason of its simplicity and universal applicability to hold together the various elements of a system extending from the promise of logic to the analysis of religion it is safe to say that no department of human knowledge has failed to feel the influence of hegel's doctrines or at least of his method and this is due partly to the fact that his philosophy embodies the highest aspirations of the spirit of the nineteenth century the spirit of collectivism and partly to the fact that in his system of thought so large scope is assigned to the principle of development which has so dominated the scientific as well as the philosophical thought of the century but the very greatness of hegel's plan the vastness of the enterprise itself was the surest guarantee of its ultimate failure the rational alone is real is a formula which as understood and applied by hegel means that there are no limits to the power of the thinking faculty for whether we understand the rational to refer to the infinite reason of the creator or to the finite reason of the creature the conclusion is ultimately the same that everything real is to be analyzed in terms of rational thought how inadequate is this view of reality the reaction against hegelianism has taught us by insisting on the importance of the non-rational and how hopeless is the self-imposed task of this new gnosticism is proved by hegel's concept of god which is the least satisfactory portion of his philosophy the attempt to bring all reality under a single formula may indeed be the ideal of philosophy but it is certainly an ideal which is as unattainable in practice as the dream of the world conqueror who would bring all the nations of the earth under the sceptre of one monarch 
the highest unification which the finite mind can effect will necessarily fall short of absolute unity for it is not given to the human mind to grasp the totality of being and to find in one formula a rationale of all reality no philosophical system can consistently claim to comprehend god it may discover him but it must acknowledge that he and his ways are inscrutable philosophy must leave room for faith and its last word must be the necessity of faith gnosticism as the modern world is just now realizing is more irreligious than agnosticism it was the followers of hegel who first revealed to the religious world the true drift of hegelianism the so-called hegelian leftists developed the anti-christian elements in hegel's thought while the rightists maintained that the teaching of hegel accords with christian faith and the doctrines of the church to the leftists belonged strauss eighteen hundred eight to eighteen hundred seventy four author of das leben jesu bruno bauer eighteen hundred nine to eighteen hundred eighty two author of kritik der evangelischen geschichte des johannes not to be confused with f c bauer seventeen hundred ninety two to eighteen hundred sixty head of the tubingen school feuerbach eighteen hundred four to eighteen hundred seventy two author of das wesen des christentums and the socialist karl marx eighteen hundred eighteen to eighteen hundred eighty three to the rightists belonged Göschel, seventeen hundred eighty one to eighteen hundred sixty one rosenkranz eighteen hundred five to eighteen hundred seventy nine professor at Königsberg, and johann eduard erdmann eighteen hundred five to eighteen hundred ninety two professor at halle End of chapter sixty five